Please take your Bibles and turn with me now to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. We'll be looking this morning together at verses 7 through 21. We've been traveling through a divine record of the life of Abram, or as he'll later be called, Abraham. Still at this point, Abram. We've been watching his life, and we'll soon see uh, some details from the life of his descendants, Isaac and Jacob and so on. As we consider what has been recorded here and preserved for us, we have seen, I hope most importantly, a snapshot of who God is and how he deals with his people in this world. And then as we have seen God's character and work on display in Abram's life, I hope we are building and growing and understanding a picture of how true faith really works. That is, what is true faith? Where does it rest? How does it grow? And what does it produce in the lives of the faithful? We come to Genesis chapter 15, we come to one of those mountain peak passages in Scripture. As God continues to reveal himself and his plan of salvation, the life of Abram brings it into clearer focus for us. Genesis 15 is a crucial highlight because it brings the revelation of God's plan of salvation to a new level. And by studying this chapter for ourselves, we continue to learn and we continue to see greater revelation of who God is and what he is up to in this world and what salvation is and how God brings it about, and what it all means for us. This chapter brings into focus God's covenant with Abram, the Abrahamic covenant. It's a significant moment in Scripture, but we need to remember that the covenant doesn't begin here. It began in chapter 12 with God's call of Abram out of his pagan homeland, it began in chapter 12 with God's promise of land and seed and, and a blessing to Abram. And with Abram's faith in God. And there has been a long period of time that has passed throughout chapters 12, 13, and 14. A long time in which Abram's faith is put on display. It has been challenged and it has continued to grow. And so chapter 15 is not the introduction of the covenant but it is the ratification of it or the confirmation of it as God continues to reveal its validity, the validity of his promises and the certainty of the promises that he has begun making back in chapter 12. Chapter 15 then is the assurance that God gives to Abram's faith through covenant promises. And our focus today is on Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 through 21, but the whole chapter covers the making of this covenant. So as we read, I want to start in verse 1 again and read through what we covered last week too. So please follow along with me as I read Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. 
After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted, and, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with, a gr with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And that word Amorites is meant to refer to all the nations of the promised land in Canaan. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I've said many times before that Scripture is one unified story from beginning to end, from Genesis through Revelation. That story is a historical record of how God has revealed Himself through creation, through His design and commands and purposes for the world that He has made, through the salvation of His people from their sins, and the restoration of his people and all things to himself. And that story that progresses throughout Scripture is carried along by covenants. Those covenants serve as landmarks, as it were, marking out new chapters of revelation and of God's dealing with his people. 
So in a sense, that began back in the Garden of Eden with God's instruction to Adam about the world and how to live in it. And then it took another step forward with Noah and Noah's sacrifice before the Lord and God's solemn promise never again to destroy the earth with a flood. And then here, the story takes another step forward with God's promise and covenant with Abram. And then again, we'll see another step forward later on with Moses and the institution of the Mosaic Covenant and the law at Sinai. All of these steps carry forward the revelation of God's plan of redemption and salvation more and more. And as they carry it forward, they progressively reveal the character of God and the nature of His ways and the nature of His commands and His plans and His plan to save His people and to defeat the curse of sin and death. And then all of this culminates in the New Testament, or what's often called the New Covenant, and the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose life and death and resurrection satisfy the wrath of God and save forever all who believe in Him. And in all of this, all the way along, we learn who God is. We learn how people are saved. We learn what it means to live a life of faith in this world and to follow Him. In Genesis 15, we see all of this once again demonstrated early on in Abram and in what God says to him. Abram is a man of faith. Hebrews 11 says so. His life demonstrates it. But Abram is not a man of perfect faith. I would argue he's not necessarily even a man of strong faith, at least not yet. But he is a man of growing faith. He is a man of normal faith. The normal faith of a normal man living in a normal sinful world as we know it. Abram's faith fails him at times. We saw that in chapter 12. We're going to see it again in chapter 16. His faith sometimes falters, and we see that here in chapter 15. But Abram's faith is in the right place. It is in the Lord God alone, and that makes Abram's faltering faith a secure faith, a steadfast faith. In fact, verse 6 tells us that he believed God. That's his faith. And God counted that to him to be righteousness. Weak as it was, his faith was strong because it was in the right place. And it was settled on the right object, the Lord God Almighty. But it's still a growing faith. And in chapter 15, there are still questions that Abram cannot answer, and it troubles him. And the Lord pulls it out of him here. So God speaks to him in chapter 15, and he draws out Abram's complaint and concern, indicating, yes, dear saint, it is okay to express your trouble to the Lord, even when it's a question about himself. And then, in a magnificent vision, God reassures Abram that he meant what he said and he will bring it to pass. We often need to hear that, don't we? Lord, I don't see, I don't understand. God's word 
constantly brings us back. Yes, but God said, and he will follow through. And God resettles Abraham's faith here by confirming his promises through a formal covenant. And in it all, Abram is reminded by God himself. And by looking at this account, we are reminded too that God is good and God is powerful and God is in charge. And therefore, God is our security and God is our sufficiency. Let's work through the text now and see how God teaches all of this to Abram and to us. In verse six, verses 1 through 6, God reaffirms his promise of descendants. We saw that last week. That's the people part of the promise. Now in verses 7 through 21, God reaffirms his promise of land to Abram. So in verses 7 and 8, God speaks to Abram again. And then Abram's going to ask another question as he tries to understand all that, is, all that God is saying. So in verse 7, look at it with me. God says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. There is that constant reminder from God. I am the Lord. Those of you reading through Exodus right now, you're going to notice it if you haven't already, how many times the Lord reasserts that. I am doing this because I am the Lord, and I want all the nations to know I am the Lord. This is what we most need to know in every circumstance, that He is the Lord. Now, this is, in verse 7, the same vision, the same conversation that began in verses 1 through 6. But now God turns His attention to the land, and He keeps making promises. He keeps reinforcing those promises and reasserting what he has already said. But notice that as God does that, he always keeps those promises tied to his own character. I am the Lord. And then he always keeps them tied to the proof of his own works. I am the Lord who brought you out of earth. That will be important in a moment as we consider Abram's question. But then notice what Abram says in response to this in verse 8. O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? It might be easy to criticize Abram for asking a question in a scenario like that, but let's not be too hard on him, because what God is promising him is humanly impossible. Abram is not asking this question out of doubt. Verse 6 already told us he does believe God. But there had, there had been a long delay since God had made the promise. And even with as old as he was when he made the promise, it was already far-fetched. And now it's even worse. And there's been a long delay, and what God said seems humanly impossible. So Abram is, is confessing, Lord, I don't understand. And he's asking for some reassuring sign, some kind of confrontation, or excuse me, confirmation that will strengthen his faith. Remember, Abram has never seen this before. He is a first, 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 first generation believer here, right? So Abram is essentially saying, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. You know, 
there are many even today who ask questions like this, aren't there? When we find ourselves in the midst of an impossible situation or facing a difficult decision or experiencing a painful struggle, Lord, what are you doing? What am I supposed to do in all this? What is your will and how am I supposed to know? Do you ever ask those questions? It's okay if you do. They're good questions. The Lord draws those questions out. He wants you to ask them. He knows they're on your heart. And this is where verse 7 comes back into the conversation. Did you notice? God has already begun answering the question even before the question is asked. But God never explains to Abram how these things are going to happen. He simply reassures Abram that he can be trusted because he is God. He can be trusted to do what he said he will do. And how does God explain that to Abram? Two ways. First of all, by looking back and reminding Abram of what he's already done to this point in his life. Bringing him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Pulling him out sovereignly from the pagan worship of his former life. Delivering him from his false religion. God explains this by looking back, but then he also explains it by looking forward and restating his promise. And he does all of this with a close connection to his covenant name, Yahweh. It all sounds very much like what God does in Exodus 20 to the people of Israel when he not only gave his law to his people, but he also gives reassurance of his good plans for their future. Listen, beloved, God rarely reveals to us all of the details of the plans that he has for our lives in the future. So our specific questions regarding those details are often left unanswered. But what God does do, and this is far greater, this is far better, is remind us of who he is as the all-powerful and in-charge and good and trustworthy God. How does he reveal this? How does he bring this back to our minds? Well, he does it by showing us himself in his word. And he does it by reminding us of his work in our past. You've seen the track record. Has he ever failed you yet? Then why do we need to question our future? You know who he is. He's Yahweh. He's not some makeshift God. He's not some knockoff deity. He is the Lord of heaven and earth who hung the stars, who spoke the world into existence, and who holds your life in the palm of his hand. You don't need to question. I mean, we can ask our questions, but our faith can be strong because it's in him. This is why one of the first martyrs of the Christian church, a man named Polycarp, when he was faced with threats of being burned at the stake if he did not renounce Christ, could confidently at the end of his life and humbly say, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. 
How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You want your faith to be, to be strengthened. Read the accounts of the martyrs at the end of their lives and how these men could stand and these women could stand in the face of death and say, God hasn't let me go yet. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I'm with him. Or as John Newton so confidently put it, his grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Or as the Apostle Paul said, I am sure of this. I am sure of this. I am rock solid secure in this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But God doesn't stop there. He has more to reveal about his work through Abram and its ultimate future significance. And so that brings us to verses 9 through 11. God doesn't rebuke Abram for his question, nor does he chide him for his struggling faith. God, God is so patient and caring, isn't he? So long-suffering. Here he gives a sure confirmation and assurance. Look at verse 9. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And you say, Amen. That's reassuring. Now he's going somewhere with this. And Abram knows what he's up to. Abram knows what's coming, I think, because affirming a promise in the way that God does in this passage was fairly normal in that culture. So Abram knows what to do. And so we read in verse 10, and he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So he cuts the animals in half, which, by the way, was no easy task. And he lays them out on the ground in two parallel opposite lanes. And there were two birds. He didn't cut the birds in half. My guess is the two birds were opposite of each other, for what it's worth. Now, many have tried to attach some symbolic significance to the birds coming down in verse 11. I suppose there could be something to it, but no one seems to really know what it was. I think it's more intended to be a good element of storytelling, making the story come alive by bringing some details into the picture. And I think it shows us, one, that this is not just a dream, but this is a real event. He really cut these animals in half. They're really lying there on the ground. And two, I think it's showing us that there was a considerable delay. This didn't happen in 10 minutes. We'll see in a moment that another night has come. So this is likely an all-day thing that's going on. But there are two other critical observations I want us to see that carry this passage forward. First of all, Notice that God is the one initiating all of this and carrying it forward. This is how it always is between God and men. Scripture makes it abundantly clear, man does not seek after God on his own. God is always the initiator in his relationship with his people. And as the initiator, he is the one who is making this unilateral promise and bearing the responsibility for it in this covenant. Man isn't moving closer to God. God is condescending to man to reach him by his grace. 
And then, interestingly enough, notice secondly that all the animals listed here are animals that factor prominently into the sacrificial system of Israel that will later be instituted. And there we have a textual hint that what's going on here has a greater significance beyond just Abram. And we'll see in a moment what that is. That brings us to verses 12 through 16, where God speaks and gives even more detail about his promise. Verse 12, we read, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then he describes uh, to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will serve as servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. And then God says, I will bring judgment on that nation. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. And he tells Abram, but you, you'll, you'll go to your fathers in peace. In verse 16, the people, the later generations, will come back in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That reference in verse 12 to the sun going down gives us some sense of how long this encounter with God is taking. Verses 1 through 6 happened at night or at least very early in the morning when he could still see the stars. And now the sun is going down again, which tells us this is at least another day that has gone by. No doubt it would have taken Abram some time to round up the animals and to cut them in half. And then there is the delay of God until the night again. And then in verse 12, we read that a deep sleep fell on Abram in great terror. I'm sure Abram was tired by this point after all that work, but I think this is referring to a supernatural sleep that God imposes on him. Abram's part is done. God is the one doing the work in this covenant. And then in verses 13 through 16, God reveals more detail about his plan. He explains his delay. He explains the bigger picture of what he is doing, and he makes it clear that the, the fulfillment or the realization of God's promise to him will not happen in Abram's lifetime. Abram, look, I know you've been waiting a long time. You're going to wait some more. And by the way, you're not even going to see the ultimate fulfillment of this, not in your lifetime. He says in verse 15 that Abram will live out his days in peace, and then he will die. It's a comforting assurance. But the only fulfillment Abram is going to see will be the birth of his own son. And then what God, what God describes in verses 13 to 14 begins with Abram's great-grandchildren. And, and when they go down to Egypt, and after that the Egyptians will enslave the people of Israel. They'll be in that land for 430 years. Don't let that trip you up from the 400 mentioned here. It's a round number, and the idea there is generations, which were usually marked by a hundred years at a time. The fourth generation, he says. Then after that, God will deliver his people with a mighty hand and will judge Egypt so that all the world will know that Yahweh is God and there is no other. What's going on in Abram's life has cosmic implications. And in the meantime, God says in verse 16, that he is also waiting to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land until their iniquity is filled up. Their iniquity or their sin has come to its fulfillment. What does that mean? Friends, it means that God is entirely and incredibly patient. 
And aren't you thankful He is? God is long-suffering, waiting for people to repent, giving ample opportunity to repent and come to Him in faith. And all of this is going on in the background as Abram sits and waits for God's next move. Abram can't see it from his own limited perspective, but God's delay does not mean that God is inactive. It means he is up to much more than we might know. And here God gives Abram just a small taste of that. Beloved, is that not how God works in your life often too? Is that not how he works in the life of his church and in the life of his people? His thoughts and plans are so much higher and greater than, than our own. And what he is doing on a cosmic scale is far beyond our comprehension. So God's silence in our lives and his delay does not mean that he is not at work. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He is working out his plans and his promises, though you may not see it happening yet, though you may not see exactly how it is going on. And God often does all of this through periods of waiting and even periods of suffering. Your suffering doesn't mean God has forgotten you. It doesn't mean that God is no longer at work in your life. His silence and his delay and his allowance of pain in your life is in fact often evidence that of, of his gracious way of fulfilling his promises and leading you to greater fulfillment. God is at work in the darkness. He is at work in the delay and in the pain. And he is sovereignly leading you to salvation. And he is skillfully shepherding you to your eternal home with him. And his message to Abram and his message to us is, trust me in the darkness. Or as the psalmist so vividly puts it, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, John Newton puts it this way in a poem called These Inward Trials. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It's a good prayer, right? I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayest find thy all in me. That brings us then to verse 17, 
where God finally performs the covenant ceremony. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So the sun's down and it's now dark again. And that smoking fire pot and flaming torch are meant to represent the presence of Yahweh himself. As, they, as the smoke and the fire represent his presence at Sinai and through the wilderness and over the temple. And what's all this business about passing between the pieces? Well, that's how a typical covenant was confirmed in those days. In fact, the phrase make a covenant or made a covenant, as we see it in verse 18, is literally called cutting a covenant. It involved blood as a vivid testimony. And a covenant typically involved two parties, a greater authoritative party and a lesser submitted subservient party. And a typical covenant also included clear blessings and curses, blessings that were promised to one who kept the covenant, dreadful curses promised to those who break it. And then a covenant typically was formalized or or confirmed in an official ceremony where the two parties walked through these cut up pieces of flesh, these bloody carcasses, in a testimony that says, in effect, may I become like them if I break this covenant. It was a vivid, serious, solemn, memorable thing. But notice here that Abram doesn't pass through the pieces. Only God does. Abram just watches. In verse 18, we read, God made this covenant with Abram. It was a unilateral covenant from God himself. And the testimony is, in effect, that God himself is saying, may I be slaughtered and dismembered if I ever break this covenant, my promise to you. And you say, wait a minute, God can't die. God can't be slaughtered. God can't have any of these things happen to him. And I respond, yes, that's the point. Just as surely as God cannot die, God cannot lie, and his covenant cannot be broken. You could sooner cut God in half and lay him on the ground as you could cause his promise to be unfulfilled. God's word is as good as done because God is the one who said it. His plan is unalterable. His promise is unbreakable. Now, Here's where this becomes really good news for us. God makes this promise here with Abram, but nearly half a millennium later, he's going to make another promise. He's going to build on that in the Mosaic Covenant at Sinai as he establishes his people as a nation and he reveals his holy law for their lives and he establishes the holy standard of perfect righteousness that is demanded for all who would come into God's presence. He builds on this covenant. And then the rest of the Old Testament is a tragic record of how Israel repeatedly and continuously broke that covenant and joined the rest of the nations in rebellion against God and His law. We come to the end and we find out that it is truly a testimony that no one is righteous. Not even the ones who have been set apart and given all the opportunity for righteousness. No one can do it. Not even one. And that we are all 
sinners against God, and we are all rightly condemned under his wrath. And we learn nowhere does God break his covenant. But his people did. God's not the covenant breaker. Man is. We are lawbreakers. But then as we enter into the New Testament and we learn about what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross, we find the extent of God's devotion and love to his people. God took on himself the responsibility for the fulfillment of this covenant. And when it was broken, he took on himself the curse. He took on himself our curse, the covenant curse for our sin in our place through his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, when he says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And again, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Truly, all we have is Christ. Amen? Truly, Christ is all we need. And that brings us to verses 18 through 21, where we see that God's promise and covenant culminate in salvation. We see in real time in history, as we go forward from here, that God's promise is fulfilled, that he did indeed deliver his people. And he describes in verses 18 through 21, the deliverance that is to come after the bondage that he described in verses 12 through 16. Listen, the suffering will end. The waiting will end. God will deliver his people and he will deliver on his promise. And what God reveals to Abram in these verses is a picture of how he deals with his people from start, calling Abram out of Ur, to deliverance, to end, putting his people in the promised land. God calls. God justifies. God saves, God promises, God sustains, He delivers, and He glorifies every step of the way. Or as the Apostle Paul concludes in Romans chapter 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, that's eternity past, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense, but eternity future. No wonder the Apostle Paul cries out, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
So Christian, turn your eyes upon Jesus today. You have no reason not to. You have every reason to look up. Trust God. Rejoice in His greatness. Renew your confidence that He cares. Give your life to His sovereign power. Wait on Him. Stop looking for security and fulfillment in the things of this world. Acknowledge that God is great and that God is good and all your ways are known to Him. Don't give up just because you don't see things going the way you expected. Look to Christ. Stand firm on your confession of faith. And trust your God. If you're here this morning and you've never yet come to the point of becoming a Christian, placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you today, turn from your dependence on self and the things of this world. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that Christ is all and that Christ is enough and find your joy and rest in Him by turning from your sin and confessing the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Let's pray.